0: Hi everyone, and welcome to this podcast edition of History with Psy. So, in the last episode of the podcast, we were talking about the beginnings of the Assyrian Empire. It's early history, essentially. In this episode, we finally come to what historians call the Middle Assyrian period. Basically, the years between 1365 to 1076 BCE. It's during this period that we see Assyria, which had for several hundred years been little more than the city-state of Asher, gradually expand its influence to become one of the major players and power brokers on the world stage, at least in the ancient Near East. The period between the 17th and 15th centuries BCE was a dark age for Assyria. By this, I don't necessarily mean that there was death, disease, a loss of knowledge, steep economic decline, or any of the other things that might lead to the deterioration of civilization. I simply mean that there are little, if any, sources from that time period. Other than the names of kings that appear on Kingless, there really isn't any substantial documentation of what was going on in Assyria at that time, especially in the cities of Asher and Nineveh. Perhaps things were going okay, we just don't have any way of knowing. It's doubtful, though, that the kings of Assyria at the time had any real power. On the contrary, all evidence seems to point to the fact that Assyria was dominated by various Hurrian-speaking rulers who ultimately formed what became known as the Kingdom of the Mitanni. For a few decades of the 15th and 14th centuries BCE, the Mitanni were the superpower of their day. Made up of mostly Hurrian-speaking groups although there's a theory out there that the ruling class were of Indo-European origin, what became the Kingdom of the Mitanni was most likely a federation of various kingdoms that had come together in order to better defend themselves from larger states, such as the Hittite Empire or the Kingdom of Egypt. At its height, the Hurrian Kingdom of the Mitanni occupied much of what's today Syria, southwestern Anatolia, and stretched from the northeastern shores of the Mediterranean on one end to the foothills of the Zagros Mountains on the other. This included the section of northern Mesopotamia that made up all of Assyria. Thus, the Assyrians were likely Akkadian-speaking vassals of the Hurrian-speaking Mitanni. One of the most powerful Mitanni kings was Shaushtatar. His exact dates aren't known but he probably ruled sometime between 1450 and 1420 BCE. It's during that time that Shauštatar sacked the city of Ashur and apparently looted its great temple, taking back a door made of silver and gold to the Mitanni capital of Washukani. So the Assyrian state must have been very weak for the Mitanni king to have been able to have launched a direct attack on Ashur. The specific reason for this is unknown. It's likely that the Assyrians revolted, which incurred Shalshatar's wrath and impelled him to make the trip out to Asher in order to seek retribution. As far as we can tell, though, Assyria's king list wasn't broken, meaning that there was an Assyrian with at least some type of authority in Asher. Though he may have been a puppet king, this was at least much better than having a Mitanni or Hurrian governor installed in the city. The Kingdom of the Mitanni, though, didn't last forever. In fact, less than 100 years after Shauštatar's punishing incursion, the Mitanni king Tushrata was defeated by the Hittite king, Jupiluliuma. To make a long story short, the Hittites installed their own puppet ruler, Artatama II, who actually may have been Tushrata's brother or a cousin. From then onward, this weakened, puppet Mitanni state became known as Hanigalbat. It was also the right time for the Assyrians, under their king, Ashur-Ubilit I, to make their move. During all of the conflict going on between the Mitanni and the Hittites to the west, the Assyrians were able to reassert their independence. Not only this, but they, along with another kingdom called Alshi, invaded and took over some territory previously belonging to the Mitanni. In addition, they curried favor with Artatama II, and even more so with his son, Shutarna III, who in return gave back the door of silver and gold that his ancestor, Shaustatar, had stolen from the temple of Asher. Asher Ubelit's confidence must have risen considerably, because he now began corresponding with the Egyptians, not as a vassal, but as a king of equal status. At least, that's how he presented himself in his letters. Two of these letters have been found in the archives at Tel El Amarna in Egypt. One addressed the pharaoh as follows. To the king of Egypt, say, thus says Ashur-Ubilit, king of Assyria. May it be well with you, your household, your land, your chariots, and your troops. I have sent my envoy to you, to see you and to see your land. I have entered into communication with you today, as up to this time my forefathers never entered into communication. I have had sent to you a fine chariot and pear and a jewel of real lapis lazuli as presents to you. Do not detain my messenger, who I have sent to see you. He is to see you and come back. Let him be acquainted with you and your land, and then let him come back. Assyria under Ashur-Ubilit had become a regional power, though not everyone recognized it. The Kassite king of Babylonia, who now somehow claimed the Assyrians to be his own vassals, wrote the following to the pharaoh. Why have these Assyrians, who are my subjects, come to your country? If you love me, do not let them get what they want. Send them off empty-handed. Of course... It wasn't at all true that the Assyrians were vassals of the Babylonian king. After all, it was the Assyrians who, after breaking away from Mitanni domination, now dominated their former overlords. The Babylonian king was probably just a bit scared that this new, upstart Assyrian kingdom would one day be a great threat to him and Babylon. He was right to fear Assyria. Ashurubalit, though, was a pragmatist. He didn't want to overextend himself and open up a conflict on his southern border. Thus, he married his daughter, Mubalitat Shirua, to the Kassite king, the II. It seems, though, that there were many in Babylon who were not happy with the union. In 1333 BCE, Mubalitat Shirua and her son, Kara-Hardash, who had just become the new king of Babylon, were killed in a coup. This enraged Ashur-Ubalit, and his honor no doubt demanded that he avenge the death of both his daughter and grandson. The Assyrian account of what happened is as follows. And keep in mind, as I read the translation, the term Karduniyash is the actual name of the Kassite kingdom of Babylon. In the time of Ashur-Ubalit, king of Assyria, Kassite troops rebelled against Kara Hardash, King of Karduniash, son of Mubalitat Shirua, the daughter of Ashur Ubalit, and killed him. They appointed Nazi Bugash, a Kassite, son of nobody, as king over them. Asherubalit marched to Karduniash to avenge Kara Hardash, his grandson. He killed Nazi Bugash, king of Karduniash, appointed Kurigalzu the younger Son of Burnaburiash, as king, and put him on the throne of his father. This Kurigalzu the Younger on the Babylonian king list is the king, Kurigalzu II, and the event just described in the chronicle is the first mention of Assyrian intervention in the internal affairs of Babylon. Though, as we'll soon see, it wouldn't be the last. One could argue that this event was also the source of the bitter enmity and rivalry between the two kingdoms for the next 700 years. Ashur-Ubelit was a great Assyrian king for several reasons. One is that he brought a certain degree of dignity back to Assyria and the Assyrian people who had just before his reign started were an insignificant little kingdom at the mercy of their enemies. He started first with raids in And then acquisitions of several former Mitanni territories and used the king of its successor state Hanigalbat to do his bidding. By literally picking their king for them, Ashur-Ubilit showed the Kassite dynasty of Babylon who the real power in Mesopotamia was. And finally, he extended Assyria's borders in all directions, especially to the north and the west. Basically, he laid the foundation for what we now call the Middle Assyrian Empire. That's quite a lot for one king to have done in a single reign of 35 years. So though history may see him as one of Assyria's great early kings, Asher-Ubelit saw himself as merely a steward of the god Asher. You might remember from past programs on Assyria that in theory, there was no king of Assyria as we would use the term. The real king of Assyria was the god Asher. The temporal, earthly ruler was merely the god's representative, viceroy, or steward. Though in international correspondence with others, such as the pharaoh of Egypt, Asher Ubilit addressed himself as a king, in his more, let's say, domestic inscriptions and letters, he simply calls himself the steward or viceroy of the god Asher. Here's an example in an inscription. Dedicated to rebuilding the local temple, dedicated to the goddess Ishtar. Asherubalit, the viceroy of the god Asher, the son of Ariba Adad. Ariba Adad, the viceroy of the god Asher, the son of Asherbel Nishishu. Asherbel Nishishu, the viceroy of the god Asher, the son of Asher Nirari. Asher Nirari the viceroy of the god Asher. I roofed it with beams, and I placed doors on it. From its foundation to its parapet, I renewed it. I restored it to its sacred condition. I settled Ishtar, the mistress, inside that temple, and I deposited my foundation cone. When that temple falls in ruins, and a later prince rebuilds it, may Asher, Adad, and Ishtar hear his prayer. May he return my foundation cone to its place. After Ashur-Ubalit's death in 1330 BCE, the relationship between Assyria and Babylonia took a turn for the worst. Kurigalzu II was eager to show that he was not just a puppet placed on the throne by the Assyrian king. He went with a large army deep into Assyria and faced the new Assyrian king, and Nirari in a battle some 40 kilometers southwest of the modern-day city of Erbil, Iraq. The Babylonian account is that they were victorious, and that they even captured several high-ranking Assyrians. The Assyrian version of the same event states the opposite. Yes, the Babylonians did invade, but they were pushed back, and that a new border was created between the two kingdoms. Scholars seem to agree more with the Assyrian version of the outcome. Enlil-Nirari's son and successor, arik ili also fought several battles, but at least from his inscriptions, they seem to have been against hill tribes from the north. However, don't let that fool you. Though they might not have been affiliated with a particular state, these tribes must have been powerful, because in one inscription, it's reported that they were only a few miles outside of Nineveh, a city considered to be part of the Assyrian heartland. They were repelled and Arik-den-Ili expanded Assyria's borders further northwards towards the Taurus Mountains. The stage was now set for future Assyrian expansion, which would continue under Assyria's next great kings, Adad-Nirari, Shalmaneser, and Tukulti-Ninurta. Their stories, though, deserve separate episodes, so be sure that you subscribe to the podcast so that you won't miss them. As always, thanks for joining me and I can't wait to see you in the next one. Take care.